Well, welcome everybody to another episode of the Kings Hall Podcast. My name is Brian Sauvey, joined by some Chad Kings. Go ahead and introduce yourselves, gentlemen. I am Leroy Jenkins slash Genghis Khan. That's actually both a lie. Wow. Genghis Khan. Damn. I think it's pronounced Genghis. Genghis. It's yeah, definitely, definitely Genghis. Genghis. Yeah. Uh, well, he's my people. So here is my question. He's for you, everybody's Dan. people, actually. actually he fathered out. like most of Siberia. <laughs> I actually have a direct bloodline um, to Genghis Khan. This explains so, so much. And Genghis. To, and to Maverick yeah. from Top Gun. So the other <laughs> interesting thing. Wow. <laughs> That's really interesting. I didn't know that. A fictional character. Wow. Do you think my basically father, Genghis Khan, do you think he would have defeated your people in open war? Genghis Khan would not have defeated my people. Genghis. He could not have traversed the ice flows with his horses. Oh, he would have destroyed them, I think, my father. Wow, this episode off to a great start so far. Uh, what about you? Who, who uh, else do we have here? I'm Dan Burkholder. Dan That's Burkholder. It. I'm not related no to anyone names. of distinction. You know what I found out yesterday is that According to my family lore, I'm related to some Mayflower passengers. But I feel like every family makes this kind of stuff up, yeah, so my, I'm going to do my yeah, own research. My wife's family, they joke that they were stowaways on the Mayflower. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Those Polacks, let me tell yeah, you what. man. Well, we did, we did the ancestry thing, and apparently, uh, like, the one we did was, like, a Mormon company. So in the Mormons, everybody's related to Jesus and Mary Magdalene. What? Yeah. And Jerry was like, okay, th this is fake. You're like, we've made a mistake. <laughs> I want my $79.99 back. Well, everybody, welcome to this episode of the King's Hall podcast. We have a great interview that we're going to roll for you here in a minute with Rory Groves. Eric, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Rory? Um, uh, some of you have probably heard of his book. Uh, and if you haven't read it already, you should definitely pick it up. But go ahead and give us a quick intro there, Eric. Yeah, definitely. So I first found Rory through his book, Durable Trades. Um, since that time, that's been a couple years I did an episode on the Hard Men podcast, really enjoyed this concept of really productive property being brought back into the household, finding trades that have lasted across the centuries. Mm -hmm. Particularly, uh, the book came out really helpful timing. It came out right in 2020 with COVID. And so the economy shutting down, and that was a great time to be thinking about, hey, is my trade durable and or, as the government called it, essential? Mm. Well, and what you found out, a lot of the things that are on Rory's list in the book were things that didn't go away during uh, the pandemic, the great yeah. shamdemic of 2020. So anyway, yeah, I talked to Rory, kind of got into this um, idea of how, how do you actually build productive property in the real world? I think that's something we'll talk about too in After Hours. Yeah, we're going to take some time in our patron show After Hours to talk about our own approach here in Ogden with our business endeavors, really why we even structure our whole intellectual work through the New Christian Impress and other endeavors as well the way we do. Uh, I like, I actually didn't know this until today, but Wendell Berry actually endorsed durable trades. Interesting. He said, not every book is necessary, not by a long shot, but durable trades is necessary. And and I think that he's onto something there with that, you know, the language of necessary, because we have so many books in the marketing world, in the self-help world, in the here's how to start a business, here's how to make money, manage money, invest in stuff, whatever it is. But what Rory is trying to do in this book is uncover family-centered professions that are uniquely suited, I think, to a lot of the things that we've talked about in the King's Hall in the first season and in this season, um, professions that have endured through some of the hardest periods of history and made it. And I think a lot of us sense that 
impending, like the hammer could be falling on our generation right. in a lot of economic uh, and uh, and other ways, culturally and financially and, col- and in all these different ways in the family, the church. And so it's going to be important that people figure out how to be fathers who set their children up for success in their professions to last through trial and for they themselves to do that. I think it's also important because sometimes when I talked about it before durable trades, people think like, okay, so this is like arts and crafts at home that you can sell at a fair. (laughs) Etsy. And while that could be fun, we're actually talking about um, a lot of things make the list like a pastor uh, because those are things that are hard to replace with technology. Yeah. Um, You know, counselors, stuff like that. Chat Um, GPT does a lot of our counseling. (laughs) Right. Um, not mine. Oh, no, no. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Never mind. Well, Scratch I think, that. I think the book is particularly helpful because a more, majority of men nowadays, I believe, are in knowledge work of some sort. That mm-hmm. just, when you hear knowledge work, just think cubicle work, like wherever you are in a yep. cubicle. The cubicle plantation. Yeah. And the way that Rory has structured the book through a ranking system with all of these different trades, even a doctor is on there mm-hmm. as like yep. being a trade, uh, as well as a shepherd, a butcher, Carpenter, uh, you'll have to read the book, but he ranks them based on their durability, their profitability, how long they've been around, things like that. So it's very, very helpful Practical. to be structured that way. So as your typical knowledge worker in the modernized factory work, mm-hmm. which is data entry type middleman jobs, yeah. it's, it's a really helpful book to explore to think, what can I be doing to make myself more durable? Mm. You know, as as a family and as a man, yeah. So right. I, I think it's really helpful as far as structuring your life, with giving you more optionality. Yeah. So yeah, and and I think the final thing, Dan, just to to piggyback on what you're saying, how does it tie into fatherhood? Well, I think as fathers, part of our role is passing on a trade that used to be part of fatherhood, and I think it still should be. Yeah. Um, but used to be visibly part of fatherhood that you would pass a trade off to your sons, especially. Because when you think, okay, I, I want to help my son find a, a godly wife and build a household and a family, well, he's going to need a trade. And he's going to be able to, you know, need to be able to provide for his family. Yeah. So I want to get him off uh, thinking on on the right kinds of durable work that he can yeah. do. Yeah. Are there any themes that you can tease for us in this interview, Eric, that, you, you know, you're the one who sat down with them uh, that people can expect to hear in this interview, things to be paying attention for? Yeah, I think one of the things is, uh, we talk a lot about uh, in the interview not having a perfectionistic mindset about this. Mm. Um, Rory is kind of like first generation figuring this out. That's yeah. where a lot of us are. Yep. But at the same time, you don't have to lose hope. Um, there's a lot of practical things that we'll talk about in the episode that you can be doing mm. um, to gear yourself and your your children up. And so Rory's going to talk about a lot of those things. I think it'll be very practically uh, helpful. Excellent. Well, with that said, Ray, why don't you go ahead and roll that interview for everybody? We hope it's helpful to you guys. And We'll see you on the other side. Well, welcome to the King's Hall podcast. I am playing your host today. I'm Eric Kahn, and I'm joined today by Mr. Rory Groves. Rory, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me back, Eric. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Well, Rory, I understand you guys have some snow up in Minnesota. We just had some snow. It's that time of year. You got the wood fireplace going on in the background. That's right. The the snow, the time of year for snow seems to be... Pretty much every time of year up here in Minnesota. Yes. It feels like that about this time of year. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Rory, in this episode, we're going to be talking about kind of continuing this theme that we've been talking about in the King's Hall podcast, which is the importance of fathers. And I think in particular, uh, because of 
you know, we've talked about it before on the Hard Men podcast, but talking about your book, Durable Trades, maybe we can start there. It seems like when you get into things like vocations, it really is a father-son endeavor and also uh, something that's passed on as inheritance. I just want to ask you, when did you start realizing, like with what you're doing, um, that it was going to be an important thing to include your children? as a father in, in that work? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's, that actually does strike at the heart of, uh, why I wrote that book and mm. it, which started as a personal quest for me and my family. It wasn't actually a book project when I started out. I didn't say, Hey, I think this, this topic hasn't been addressed yet and I'm going to be the one to do it. I was just coming off of about 20 years in high tech and realizing that, um, do I want to spend the next 20 years of the, of my life, in this direction, in this vocation, and still be boxing my family out of that most time-intensive part of my life. You know, in other words, I couldn't, I couldn't really bring my kids or my wife or my family along with me to the computer screen, you know, to really understand what I was doing, what I was creating. And it started to um, crave something as I became a father, of course, I started to crave something that we could be doing together started to wonder, you know, is it possible in 20, you know, say 2020, is it possible for families to still work together? I mean, I hear examples like that from time to time of a family business. And every once in a while, it seems like, you know, of course, there's farmers out there that do that. But what else is out there for guys if they are feeling drawn in this direction? Because I basically had reached a point in my career where I knew money wasn't going to bring me fulfillment in life. And, you know, there was diminishing returns on the number of coding languages I was learning um, or the things that I was putting out there and watch watching go obsolete three days later. So <laughs> yes. I was I was really craving that. Like I knew family was so rewarding, you know, to be able to bring them into another task was so rewarding. So that was where I began to first think about and question some of these things. And it led me to just basically started, you know, was putting together a spreadsheet. I was looking at historical businesses and I was saying, uh, you know, seeing in the research where there would be fathers passing on their, you know, carefully learned and, 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 and skilled trades that they had spent a lifetime learning. They're passing those on to their kids and they're apprenticing mm -hmm. them and they're mentoring them and discipling them along the way. And then there's their children are passing it on to their own children. So you have these third and fourth and fifth generations that are accumulating knowledge. And it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of inheritance than I was used to, where most of our jobs will last a couple of years. There's no chance to even become a master craftsman in most of the careers that we have today. So that, that was really at the heart of it. And, I, and I, the more I dug into it, the more I thought, yeah, there's, there's definitely got to be a better way than how we've been going about this the last several decades. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. It also makes me think of, okay, so a household uh, household economy, the stuff that you're trying to encourage people to build, obviously wives and daughters are included in this as well. I guess just talk about why it's so important as a father to be you know, setting that tone in your home for them as well. And what sorts of things are you trying to teach them as a part of that process? Yeah, I would answer that by saying, I think one of the fundamental shifts that we took on in society is to begin to think of families as a collection of individuals who all have mm. their own separate individual pursuits. And kind of the, the you know, a lot of this comes out from some of the philosophical thinkers centuries yeah. ago, 
But we're walking that out today where everyone is trying to find their, their um, fulfillment in life through personal achievement. Um, so you have, you know, the husband and wife oftentimes are working two separate careers outside the home because they're outside the home trying to find their own personal achievement. Then the children have to go somewhere. And so you have the children in public daycare, also known as public school, and even the brothers and the sisters are separated from each other in those schools because okay? it's all age segregated. So you have the entire system, the machinery of modern society is geared around individualism. Mm. And if you go back to scripture and you read what was family, you know, what is mankind? How did God create us to function in the beginning? You find that God took woman out of man, that we are united as one flesh. And so, and the children issue from that one flesh. And so this, this whole concept of a family as a single unit, as a single work unit, used to be how most of, histor- uh, most of history regarded the family, that they were meant to work together, to provide together, to share a common vision. And so I think when you break apart that notion of the family as one flesh, and then you set it free to kind of do all of its own personal am- ambition— then you actually end up tearing down the original design for family and, and um, tearing down any possibility of finding true fulfillment through that. Now, there's a spiritual significance to it too, which I'm not touching on, but that's, that's absolutely essential and biblical. But I would just say that even the fulfillment, the personal fulfillment, will not be achieved by personal ambition. And so when you're talking about, let's, let's go back now to your question on wives and daughters. So... Um, why do we have wives and daughters? What is the purpose that God instituted for the family? And if this concept of the family is meant to work together to be part of uh, a larger whole, right, where the, the sum of the parts is greater, or the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, then the goal is not to break that family apart. But the wife has a role, the children have roles, uh, the sons have roles that are different than your daughter's. And historically, you're looking at things like the sons are going to need to be leaders in their own homes when the day comes. So as a father, you're looking at your sons and you're saying, what can I do to prepare them to have successful, intact families and fulfilling lives and provide and protect and all these things for their families? And you're looking at your daughters and you're saying, how has God created them and gifted them to be part of a family, part of a larger whole? Not just you can be president someday or you can achieve whatever you want to, whatever you dream of. That's not actually going to satisfy the human creation as God designed us. Yeah, that's exactly right. It also brings me to a, another question just at a, at a personal level. So you've kind of had these two modes of existence, right? Where And you talk about this in your book, Durable Trades, where you're you're working in technology, you're doing that, and then you guys make this shift. But I'm curious on a day-to-day level, if you look at like today versus back then, can you gauge just what the difference in family life is overall, maybe on a scale of like happiness or fulfillment? Do, do you sense that there's been a huge difference for you and your family? Oh, if you're just talking about us personally? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, we were we were always very happy we were very blessed. I, I consider myself blessed. We had I had a good career. It paid well. I was able to even work from home for, you know, I still had to be separated when I was doing my work, but for many years I was able to work from home. We had things like, in terms of a modern construct, uh, we were very blessed and had things very well, but there was, there was still this void 
of purpose and fulfillment of like, why are my children here? Why are they part of this family? What, what is there that we're supposed to do together mm. that only our family can do together? Because that's the other thing too, is God's given you just as, just as he's ordained you, your marriage and he's brought together certain gifts and abilities and personalities to create something that didn't exist before, he's also given you those children. And those children come along with certain gifts and aptitudes and, and creative energies. All of that together, you, you don't really tap into, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is there is no modern specialized career that will replace the significance and the meaning that you find when your family pulls together. Mm. And, and that especially, and I'll say I wa- I've walked away from a larger paycheck in order to pursue this direction. And I initially, I, I really wondered if I was doing a disservice by <laughs> leaving behind uh, you know, a bird in the hand so to speak, but there's no question in my mind. Absolutely none. The kind of generational inheritance that you build up just by focusing on developing that rich relationship with your own children, it by definition, it means that they will be more bonded to their children and they will pour that forward into the next generation. If you withhold, if you're absent from your children, um, if you pursue, you know, if you, if you prioritize uh, time in the office over time and time with your family, even if it's for a large retirement fund at the end of your life or whatever reason you might have for it, your children are not going to be as bonded to you. They're not going to be as bonded with their own children. And they, that, that kind of research is out there if you care to look it up. But it's a, it's a problem when God says he visits the sins of the fathers of the third and fourth generation. That's what he's talking about. It takes a while for those curses to work out. And so anyway, prioritizing family has never yielded any regrets in our lives. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, the other question I have is, I'm assuming at some point your view of inheritance uh, changed. I know mine did. I was actually reading Joel Salatin, of all people, uh, because it wasn't really something I heard talked about in the Christian church very much. But Joel was talking about leaving a living inheritance and stuff like that. So as you had time to think on these issues... I'm curious, was there a shift for you? Uh, What caused you to start rethinking, if you did, kind of these different ideals of, you know, what a retirement should look like and what an inheritance for your children should look like? Yeah, so for me, the biggest shift came with uh, considering what kind of skills I had to pass on to my kids. Mm. And I think when we moved out to the country, so we live in a farm in southern Minnesota. We moved out here 10 years ago. And uh, initially, I just kind of liked the idea of having more room to play and spread out and maybe get some chickens or something. So we've done that, but now we have tractor and we have uh, a baler and we're tending goats if we can keep them in the fences (laughs) at all. They say a a fence that will not hold water will not hold a goat, and I think that's just about true. (laughs) So we do all kinds of stuff out here, And, and I think the first dose of reality coming at this as a computer science, you know, uh, programmer background is just how ignorant I actually am <laughs> about, about the basic things that you need to live. And I just, I'm fascinated by the fact that for every generation since Adam up to, let's say, maybe the late 40s, right? Every human generation prior to that could live off the land if yeah. they had to. They all knew how. They maybe didn't want to, but they knew how. And we'd, we're at a point now where we literally don't know how. Like, we, there would be mass starvation and death if some crisis, like the Great Depression, were to come along again, right? Mm-hmm. 
at the Great Depression, 50% of the families were still rural, still lived on farms. Actually, 80% were rural, uh, 50% were still farming. Wow. And today we have 98% are not farming, or 2% are farming, and uh, well over 80% live in cities. And, and we just don't have the knowledge of how to actually provide for ourselves. Now, we have specialized knowledge, and that's what I was kind of, what was dawning on me as a in my profession, in my career, is I, ha- you know, I could, I could try to teach my eight-year-old how to program, you know, a certain language that was in vogue that day, but what's that going to do for him when yeah. he's 18, 19, or 20 entering the, it's going to be completely useless, but maybe I could teach him how to grow food, or maybe I could teach him how to build, or how to raise animals, or work with the animals, and those are all skills that I think every human being and every society should have. I mean, we should know how to live off the land. And then if you want to specialize beyond that, great. But so for me, it just started out by what what do we need to have as a basic semblance of civilization? And let me pass those skills on to my kids, because I certainly don't have them. Um, but hopefully my kids will learn them and they can pass them on to their kids. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, one of the other things it, it makes me think about is, you know, as you're thinking about the day-to-day practical vocational training, obviously you wrote the book, Durable Trades. It's made me think a lot about, okay, how do I start, you know, looking at my sons and finding opportunities for them to, you know, maybe go work with a painter or a butcher or whatever to figure out what they're good at, what they like, where their, you know, giftings are aligned. I'm curious in in your family specifically and practically, how have you started to work through for your boys some of those issues? Yeah, uh, great question. And this is a challenging one because by virtue of my background, I don't have a lot of these skills myself. And so we've, I've done what I can with what I have. I guess that's the first part. You, yeah. you know, Malachi says that in the last days, uh, God will come and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So the first step is turn your heart to your children. You know, start mm-hmm. to think generationally as a father. Not think about your retirement account or what's going to happen this weekend or who's, you know, who's on the roster for what sports team. Start thinking generationally, you know, mm. your grandchildren. Think about setting your kids up for successful careers for themselves. And then you're going to have to rely on the Lord in terms of filling in the gaps for you. So I'll, I'll give you some specific examples. So with my son, uh, my oldest son is 12. He does most of the livestock operations now, which you know pertain to feeding the animals and, and watering them and halter breaking. And he comes along with me to the livestock auction if we're going to sell some sheep and those kinds of things. So he's getting a well-rounded education in basic animal husbandry. And I think that's great. Mm. But uh, he needs a he needs a viable career. And I think one of the things that I have felt that he would be naturally gifted at is woodworking, which is one of the trades I talk about in my book. This would be like furniture making. Uh, they call it finished carpentry or, or cabinetry. Uh, it's a very durable trade. It commands, if you're skilled at it, and that's the key, you have to be good at it, but it can command a very good living. Uh, you can work from home. You can bring your family into the work. Uh, it does not require inordinately expensive tools. In fact, a lot of the best woodworking out there is done with hand tools. 
And so uh, this is something that I've thought would be a really good fit for him. But the dilemma that I have is I don't know how to do it. And I'm not going to take five years to figure it out because he'll be <laughs> right. you know, just about ready to leave. So I'm in the process at the moment of trying to find mentors for my community, for my churches, from different surrounding areas. We, we're doing what we can on you know YouTube or some different places like that. But I really want to find in-person mentorship for him so that he can begin. And he's 12 now, as I said, um, ideally... I think the best thing you can do as a father is to get your kids starting down the track to career as early and young as possible. Do not wait until your kids are 16, 17, 18 years old before you try to teach them a work ethic. You've got to get them alongside you, working with you. That's why farming is so great, because there's so many ways to bring children into that work. And it's meaningful work. It's not, uh, you know, clean your room, you know, pick up the bathroom kind of stuff. It's, it's very meaningful work that needs to be done, but it teaches a work ethic. So you want your kids at eight years old, you know, breaking a sweat and, and just getting used to the idea that this is what we do. We're created to work. This isn't something that we fill in around the edges or we look forward to quitting at the end of the week. This is what we're designed to do. And then with that, if you can find something that fits their aptitudes, their gifting, something that they are naturally drawn to, then it's actually, you know, by the time Ivers said, let's say he gets started woodworking now when he's 12, by the time he's 16 or 17, he could be very accomplished at what he's doing. And he could be doing all of this while he's still at home with us. Uh, we homeschool, so he would have a lot of time in the day to be able to go out to his wood shop and work on things and improve his craft. And I could see very likely that he would have a strong career option right in front of him by the time he leaves our house and without having to go to college. So anyway, so that's yeah. just one example that I had in each of our kids. We have six kids. Each of our kids, it's my responsibility as a father to try to single out what do I think God has gifted this child with, and then use this time that we have together to try to get him trained up in that. Yeah, I, it ties in to the next thing I wanted to ask you, because I think this is this is great. A lot of the, the era that, that I and men older than myself, your, yourself maybe too, uh, grew up with, it was kind of this idea like you were on your own, like you'd visit a guidance counselor uh, on your way out the door uh, to college, probably, because that was just kind of the de facto, like, well, go to college, then you'll figure it out. Uh, I realized going through that process, though, a lot of people got to like the fourth year of college and were like, yeah, I still don't know what I want to do. I'm graduating. I don't, I'd never really had a career track uh, from this point, but it does get to this fundamental issue of fathers are required to provide a vocation and a calling. Um, to set their kids up for success. So I want to ask you this now for on the on the side for the girls, and you think about your wife and her job. Like vocationally, what are you doing for them that is preparing them for motherhood and um, for life outside of your home? The best thing that I can think of to do, and this is still something that I'm developing as I understand it, as I study the scriptures and as I come to understand the family economy, I feel the best thing that I could do for my daughters is to help train them up to be effective wives, to support, and to be one flesh with their husbands, to partner with their husbands in the call that God has for their families. If you can break away from the argument, you know, the, the basic feminism and, and even for masculinism arguments, it's not a him versus her. Yes. They are meant to be one flesh. It's really, it's an individualist argument is what you're fighting against. And if you can understand the family as a whole, as a whole unit, uh, uh, wives and daughters 
uh, are absolutely essential to complete. Like the, the husbands cannot do what they are called by God to do without a wife who is on board. And likewise, a husband who shirks his responsibility as a father, as a protector, as a provider, uh, you cannot have a functioning family if the, fa- if the hearts of the fathers are not turned to their children. They have to be putting family first. They can't be putting golf first. They can't be putting hobbies or uh, time with buddies first. The family has to be first if they're going to have a functioning whole. And though in those families, the wives, the daughters are going to be richly provided for, well-protected, and they're going to be set up for fulfillment in life and success. I'm totally convinced of that. If people find their place within the family economy, that they're going to do well, they're going to have a well-lived life, and they're going to be richly rewarded for it. I don't know if that answers what the question or not. Absolutely. I think that's really helpful. I was talking to, I think, Rich Lusk about this, but he was saying kind of teaching his kids, like, if, okay, if mom does well, that means dad does well. If dad does well, that means mom. And we're this unit, and we do well or we don't together. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That goes against the individualism of our day for sure. I want to ask you now, Rory, about Gather and Grow. Um, You guys have been doing a lot, I think, to uh, incorporate in what you're doing, but also incorporate other people in training and stuff like that. Uh, so maybe if you would talk about that and some of the training, um, get together, people coming to your farm, doing stuff, what what are you guys up to there? Yeah, so ever since we moved out here, we just love learning all the stuff about living off the land, self-sufficiency. It's just been a big part of the drive that has been motivating us since we've moved to the country. And we've invited people along the way with us to just come out, you know, tap maple trees and make maple syrup, and here's here's how to do it, and um, here's how to butcher chickens. We've done internships over the summer. We do different kinds of gardening techniques. And we are, I guess, one of the things that we say is our expertise is that we're not experts, that we're, we're a bunch of city kids that had no idea what we're doing. And most certainly, if we can do these kinds of things, you can do them too. We can demystify a lot of that stuff. And so I feel that there's something more, something deeper than just the skills themselves what we started to do is to focus in on the whole family working together, not just picking up the individual skills, but using work as a context for bringing the family together, I think is the opportune or the, the ideal context for discipleship. So, uh, you know, when, when, you know, while we're farming here, while we're doing the different things, we get to bring the family along when they're gardening and pulling weeds or we're um, corralling sheep and moving them from one pen to the next, or like I said, you know, mending fences. There's always these opportunities. It's amazing, Eric, the kind of conversations that I have. I'll be out in the garden uh, with my uh, son, and we'll have a conversation about what makes for a wife, that qualities in a wife that you want to look for. Mm. And the things come up like that all the time. Super huge, life-impacting kind of conversations but it's not like this, we're sitting down with the Bibles open, and we just read the verse about it, now let me expound upon, you know, the virtuous wife. I mean, that happens too from time to time, but there's a receptivity there when you're actually outside and you're working and you're, you know, you're, you're digging fence poles or digging fence posts, and then you're weeding the garden or you're pulling potatoes, and you're out there together and you're talking. And you know what that is. Oh, yeah. There's something that's so natural about that context of working together, that discipleship goes hand in hand. Actually, I have a chapter in the book called The Discipleship of Work, and it's about this exact thing. So that's why I'm, it's more to me than about the homesteading skills. It's really about how can we bring the family together? 
uh, because that's where it all starts to click into place theologically and also with the land and with the creator and all these things. So um, we started this ministry called Gather and Grow. It was an outcropping of these events that we were hosting on our farm. And really what we wanted to do is we, we decided, we like I said, we didn't want to just teach the skills. Um, we really wanted to put some kind of inspiration of to take this further. It's more than just the the you know raising chickens or raising goats or things like that. It's, it's a lot more about what is God calling your family on this earth to do? And then how can we help you? And uh, so we decided to do this as a ministry rather than as like a for-profit business. Um, we just we had some different reasons for, for doing it that way, but we just felt ultimately we wanted to reach uh, a certain category of people who may not be able to afford expensive events. And so this is one of the things that we do now. So you can go to our uh, website, gatherandgrow.us, and we have... Uh, events throughout the year. We publish a newsletter. If you don't live nearby, you can kind of follow along with uh, things that we are encouraging other families in. Uh, we talk about the family economy. We give examples of other families who are doing it. And mainly, it's just to try to encourage folks. And we, you know, we were just at a conference this past weekend doing the, doing exactly that up in North Dakota. Uh, sharing more about this, um, connecting families to each other in their local areas who are walking this way. One of the things that I've noticed that a lot of people will say, um, we thought we were the only ones, or we thought we were the black sheep in the family. Yes. We're the only ones in our church that think this way. You know, why doesn't anyone else see this? And, and so folks, when they come to our events or they get our newsletter, they're like, ah, oh, we're not alone. And that's exactly why we're doing it. Yeah, I think that's really great. And it seems like, too, you know, you, you think about when your book came out, 2020, COVID, all that stuff happening. Mm. It seems like there's been a shift and what people are realizing is, well, maybe my corporate job wasn't as stable as I thought it was. Maybe the work, you know, the durability issue. So timing seems like couldn't have been more perfect for that <laughs> message. Do you, do you get the sense that more people are coming awake to the reality of like, you know, I, even yesterday I was reading an article and it said, you know, uh, Social Security is going to be no more. They're not going to be able to afford it. Well, I, I just wonder how many more people are going to start thinking then, well, maybe I have to take care of my parents. Maybe my, maybe I should have treated my kids a little better. Yeah. Um, you know, do you see people coming more and more awake to some of those realities? I think, yeah, I think the timing of the book's release certainly uh, didn't hurt. <laughs> yeah. Things were coming off at the wheels when um, I was talking about things like brittle systems in the book. Mm -hmm. The historian Joseph Tainer talks about the collapse of complex societies. Yeah. And I think it's very hard to refute his argument. He basically says that all societies reach a certain level of complexity, whereby it's no longer possible to sustain the level of complexity that they have. And they, the only way that they can deal with future problems is by reverting to a simpler model, which is what we basically call collapse. I mean, the Roman Empire went through that. All the Aztec and the Mayan civilizations went through that. Really, every civilization known to man to this point eventually reaches a, reaches a stage where they cannot increase in complexity. It's just too costly for the society to do that. So I think people looking around and they're saying, you know, where's the toilet paper <laughs> or why are eggs 10 bucks a dozen? Uh, they're starting to, it's starting to dawn on folks with increasing frequency that, Hey, you know, our way of life, this may not be normal. Uh, and, and Tanger actually would say that it, we are the anomaly of history. This is not a normal way. This vast complexity, this being rich with fossil fuels and this 
kind of upwardly mobile, prosperous life is very unusual in world history. And so uh, folks are starting to look around, and I think they're definitely more open to the possibility of doing things for themselves in a way that they weren't used to doing before. The stores may not always have what you need. You may not hear, so I live an hour south of Minneapolis. We actually lived in Minneapolis 10 years ago, and you know they're defunding the police. And they're, I mean, there's riots, and there's all kinds of um, crime escalating. And you know, it, you, you get to a point where, whereby you got to ask yourself, do I need, should I be completely dependent on a system that may not actually be there for me? Or should I start taking steps now while I have the opportunity to be more self-sufficient, uh, to rally around with other families, you know, in small community, to be more self-sufficient together and that can rely on each other when the mega structures and the states and the governments and the mandates and everything else that's coming down the pike uh, might not be in our best interests. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's really interesting, too, even at a kind of like the outside of Christendom, even secular level, you see stuff like raw egg nationalist, uh, Ren, stuff like that taking off. And you're like, I start reading the book and it's, you know, he's basically talking about like why you should have some like homesteading and you should raise your own chickens and the way that we, you know, defeat the globalist elite is you chickens. <laughs> Who knew, Rory, that that was the uh, that was the answer? But I think more and more people are realizing, okay, first of all, you know, some some of the World Health Organization stuff that seemed hokey ten years ago, and now they're like, yeah, but the food plants are actually burning down. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what's going on with that, uh, but it does definitely seem like, man, if I had a little bit more control, at least over some of the food that I was putting into my body. Um, and I know uh, on the Hard Men podcast, we talked about things like testosterone and and people's hormone health, men and women. And you start to look at the data and you're like, there are real problems going on here. So I, I guess my question for you is you start to look at some of those things. You see what's going on at a societal level. Um, are you to the point where you're saying, yeah, I think that there's more going on here with eggs and food production? Um, just curious your thoughts on that side of things. Uh, um yeah, we're we're at the last gasp of a dying civilization, mm-hmm. is the way I'd put it. Uh, the kinds of things that we're, we see going on, the devaluing of currency, the kind of moral debasement, uh, the complete breakdown of intergenerational faith and culture. You know, we used to inherit culture and faith primarily through families for the last 2,000 years, and that's not even happening now. You have like anywhere from 60 to 90% of children are abandoning the faith of their parents. All of these things happen at the end of empires. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think y- y- you need to uh, wake up and smell the napalm, as one <laughs> commentator puts it. <laughs> Your and, flesh and, is burning. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and you need to become less dependent on the massive structures, the massive structures. Mm-hmm. And you need to do what you can to become more independent. You need to have a healthy independence and self-sufficiency. You know, Apostle, uh, the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, he says, he uh, exhorts us to live quietly, mind our own business, work with our hands, so that you will not be dependent on outsiders or on anyone. And so there's a call even in scriptures for us to, to, to maintain a level of independence from worldly systems. I think that's good. I think that's healthy at all times, even if civilization was very prosperous. Yeah. But especially now, when you see some of these warning signs, 
uh, yeah, you know, uh, the, the wise man sees danger coming and takes refuge. You need to start doing some of these things. And what I would also say is you're not losing out. You're not missing out by, uh, say, taking the time that you would have spent in a movie theater and, uh, you know, picking apples off of your own orchard apple trees. You're not missing out by not joining in with the modern amenities that everything, you know, the bread and circus of modern society, you're gaining so much. We've been missing out the whole time by all of this nonsense that we've been uh, engaged with. All the television, you know that a father watches on average five hours of television a day and spends 23 minutes with household children. What? Is that five hours? That is Bureau of Labor Statistics. Five yep. hours. Five hours a day, not including working on screens. This is just passive screen time. We're missing out now if this is the kind of life we're living. The true life, the life you're meant to live, is in the earth. You're meant to steward creation. God put Adam in the garden to tend and keep it. There's, you're supposed to be in community with people around you, deep relationships. Facebook doesn't cut it, right? Twitter doesn't cut it. These are not the deep abiding relationships that God designed for us. He wants us face-to-face -face with other people, building, exhorting, sharpening, iron, sharpening, iron. But then he also wants us stewarding his earth. And be from that life, you get all kinds of blessings. I mean, I don't know if chickens will save the world, but I know that when people take it upon themselves, you know, the, the yeah. one more point to make on this is yeah. uh, John Adams, you, you've heard him quoted probably sometimes saying, uh, our constitution was written for a holy, moral, and religious people. It is, whole, it, it is wholly unsuited for any other uh, audience or something like that. Wholly inadequate for any yes. other. Okay, yeah. they were moral and religious people they wrote that constitution for, yes. But you know what else they were? They were agrarians. They were self-sufficient people. And if you, do, if you have a populace that is entirely dependent on corporations and government and large institutions, you don't have a free people anymore. They're dependent by definition. You have a people who are self-sufficient, who can provide for their own needs. They can tell the bureaucrats to go, you know, <laughs> Lick the hands that feed them. Yeah. <laughs> you get the Sam Adams, and you get the John Adams, and you get the the, the founders of the, this country. Liberty has to come from self-sufficiency. You need to be able to have some basis to say, this is my kingdom, and you don't belong here, and I don't need what you're selling. That has to be part and parcel with what we're doing here. So there is, there is very much a mission for fathers to take back control from all of these areas that we've seeded out to all of the other bureaus and in the institutions and the corporations and see what we can produce ourselves, become producers again, rather than consumers. Yeah, I think phenomenal points. Uh, it brings me to a, another question. Uh, I started reading this book because of Chris Wiley, uh, but it's Matthew Crawford's book, Shop Class as Soulcraft. Have you heard of this? Great one. Yes, okay. very good. I figured this would be up your alley, but one of the things that he says in there that has just really resonated with me and I, the pastors here, we started reading this book. Um, they talk about the value of work. So Henry Ford introduces the assembly line, and they had to pay people an exorbitant amount of money to get them to stay because no one wanted to do the actual work because they realized through hyper-specialization that the work actually was just terrible. So, But then you fast forward to now, people have gotten used to it. It's the standard to do menial work that everybody hates and is soul-destroying. When you think about passing on vocation, you think about the work you do, why is it so important to do work that is actually valuable, meaningful, and contributes to those around you? Why is that so important? Well, I mean, yeah, I think, again, it strikes at the core of what are we here for? Mm. You know, 
why do we exist? Are we supposed to be cogs in a machine? Um, the Great Resignation was this, what economists have labeled this uh, period of 2021, kind of after the initial shock of the mm-hmm. pandemic. Uh, there were 47 million employee quits in one 40, year. One 47 year, million. 47 million. One wow. third of the entire American workforce workforce quit their jobs. They weren't fired. Uh, they weren't laid off. Mm. They quit voluntarily. And so this was, and this was the, the called the Great Resignation, and in in all these, you know, management theorists are trying to figure out, you know, what's going on here. This because it breaks all of the models that they understood up to that point, which is where if you're in a recession, uh, you won't have to worry about hiring because everyone's going to want to hang on to their jobs for you know for dear life. Mm. Well, that the opposite happened. They could not keep people hired, and where you know you have CEOs quitting their jobs, very yes. high level di- directors and executives. All the way down to hotel housekeepers, they were all quitting their jobs, and they and they still. I mean, you still. If you try to travel and you try to stay in a hotel, you're still up against these problems, where they don't have enough staff in most of these service sector jobs. Why? The, the bottom line. The bottom line question is: We're not ultimately driven by economics. Mm. We're driven by meaning and significance, and people are willing to say, "I don't care what happens. I'm not doing that job anymore. I'm not coming back." That was a, like you said, that was a soul-sucking job. It was meaningless. And I'm going to, if I have to work on a farm and eke by at, at you know, <laughs> subsistence, yeah, I'm going to do it because I need something that's more fulfilling than just bringing home the paycheck. And that's a huge core of what, I mean, I'm getting at in durable trades anyway, is these are family-centered vocations. This is the, the idea here is how can we do something together in this day and age, in the modern age, Use, look with a, with a view of history and historical f- professions that have always provided this kind of meaning and significance in the past. It wasn't until the industrial age, right? You're talking after the, 19, you know, the, the 18th century, roughly, is when all of these tens of thousands of new jobs came on the scene that were just pushing buttons or literally, like, I mean, connecting, you know, the telegraph operators, connecting one cord to another cord, and that was their job the That's whole day. It. Opening a coal door for a cart, mule cart to come through 10 hours a day, six days a week. They needed someone to sit there and open the door. And it was 14-year-old kids that were doing it. So th- these are the breakdowns that happen as we started to specialize. And, um, and yeah, so to me, it's not surprising that people, it's not that people don't want to work. It's that they want their work to mean something, right? And they want, their, they want to do that work with people who mean something to them. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Uh, my other question is because I'm so, I, I guess, just interested in the conversation. But is is your, you know, I'm sure reading uh, books like this. Um, if you had like a top five list where you're like, look, these are the books you need to read. What would you What would you put on there? Oh, you put me on the spot there. I know. Let's see. Yes. Um, well, I read pretty widely at the moment because part of my job is to try to assimilate a lot of different um, categories of thinking. So I don't, I don't really pigeonhole it too much, but I definitely recommend in terms of authors, I'd recommend C.R. Wiley, as you've already mm-hmm. mentioned. I've, I've appreciated his work, uh, especially if you can get out to hear any of his talks. Uh, he's been at our farm. He did a, a gathering with us a couple of years ago. Very good stuff to share. And he's an in the trenches kind of guy. He knows what he's talking about. Um, I also like Alan Carlson, who wrote the forward to my book. If you read his stuff, definitely excellent. Uh, Wendell Berry, 
Where do you right uh, up there too? Yeah, for Alan's stuff, where where would you recommend people start? Uh, personally, I really like his book called uh, "The Natural Family: Where It Belongs," mm. uh, and it's agrarian essays. But he goes into some of these things that we've been talking about today. In fact, pretty much everything I share is just plagiarizing Alan. <laughs> <laughs> we have an arrangement; he understands, and he's okay with it. But um, Promoting. but no, you'll see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, but, but I like, he really makes the case for, you know, the family economy in, in a way that I hadn't come across before. I was an avowed capitalist up until I started reading his stuff. And he, and it's not that he's anything less than free enterprise. It's just that he wants the families to not be subjugated by corporate interests. And so, uh, it was very illuminating to kind of start to think through, uh, some of the implications of if you focus purely on the economy as the virtue of all things. If, if efficiency is the only goal of society, then you end up with these meaningless jobs and fragmented families. So yeah, so I'd appre- I appreciate him. I don't know. I mean, other than that, I spent a lot of time in the scriptures and seeing what God has to say about it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I always uh, I do the same thing. It seems like every time I talk to Chris Wiley, it's like, I want to know what you're reading and what's really good. And he'll usually have, like, that's how I figured yeah. out about uh, shop classes, soul craft. And I was like, Chris, you've been hiding this one. This is uh absolute <laughs> gem. Uh, so definitely enjoy reading that stuff. Uh, the other thing I want to ask you about is we kind of wrap things up here. I know that, uh, you guys are planning, I think at Chris's church in battleground, Washington, uh, in May, uh, there's going to be an event there that you guys are going to be at for that people can attend. If you have some information about that. Yes, yes, definitely. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. So Chris and I and Nathan Spearing will be at the traditional fatherhood intensive. It's the first annual conference that his church is putting on out there in Battleground, Washington. So um, if you go to fatherhoodintensive.com, I believe that's the right website. Coming up May 5th and 6th, so it'll be a two-day event. It's for fathers. It'll fill up fast as soon as uh, tickets go on sale. So make sure that you uh, sign up for that. But come on out and uh, spend a day and a half with us. Uh, be encouraged and meet some other like-minded men who are trying to build stronger home economies and str- trying to uh, provide and protect for their families and really getting um, a, a big dose, a big boost, I think, of encouragement and, and understanding of, of what we're up against, but also what we can practically do about it. And I believe you'll be uh, teaching a course on Brazilian jiu-jitsu and <laughs> firearms tactics courses. That would be Nathan. <laughs> that would be, be Nathan. Nathan. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, just as we wrap up, Rory, w- what encouragement would you give? It, like, things can look bleak, but if you're going to say to fathers, you know, don't lose heart, be encouraged, uh, what would you say to them? I- I've been called a sober-minded optimist. You might have picked up tones from that here today. <laughs> I'm not idealistic about what's happening out there, yeah. but I'm very optimistic because I feel there's so much that believers, true believers can be doing right now. Mm. And there is nothing more important than what fathers can be doing in their homes. First thing I would say, hands down, family worship mm. every day. Wherever you are, every father can do this with their family. If you're not doing it, make time to do it. It's the single most important thing that you can do. Mm, so do family worship with your family, and then you will... Wa- I've seen this repeated so many times. You will see 
uh, families completely changing mm. in a short amount of time as the kids start to hear their own fathers reading the Word of God to them and implementing it or applying it to their lives. But secondly, is to start focus on building your own home economy. Whatever, it doesn't mean you have to quit your job, at least not right away. Maybe you'll get there. But start do, taking steps yeah. for a common vision with your family. There's so much that you can do, right? If you just sit and take in the bad news headlines, it's going to be demoralizing. But there is a lot that you can do right with your own family, right at home. And I will tell you this, and I say put, it, put this to the test. See if God will not bless your efforts to build a family-centered economy, to come together under a common vision that God has for your family, to pull your wife into it, to pull your kids into it, and to partner up in this. And you, no matter what it is, if it's like cutting flowers and selling it at a flowers at a farmer's market on the weekends or uh, setting up a lemonade stand, I don't care what it is. Maybe it's building some furniture, doing something like that. No matter how small, you see if God will bless that. And I believe and I have seen that he will bless that. If you're seeking land, if you're seeking... Uh, a different way of life, take the first step according to what God has put on your heart and then keep praying for one step at a time and you will see an, an amazing transformation in, in, uh, as you wait patiently for the Lord to do the work for you. Mm, that's great. That's so encouraging. Thanks, Roy. I definitely appreciate that. Last thing, where can people follow along with what you are doing? I know you love to be on, I'm sure, TikTok, Facebook, all those great... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sayonara, Facebook, I guess. <laughs> yes, goodbye. Uh, yeah, come on out. So we like the tangibles, and so come on out to um, our website, gatherandgrow.us, and sign up for our newsletter. We just finished up the latest copy. We send that out a couple times a year, but we'll put we'll send something to your mailbox. It's free. Just go to the site and, and sign up for it, and we'll, we'd love to send you a copy. And we want to stay in touch. We want you to contact us if, if you can tell us how to pray for you and your family. And we're going to walk with you, and we're going to encourage you and build you up along the way. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, Rory. Thanks so much for joining me in this episode. You're very welcome. I appreciate the opportunity to share, and it's good to see you again. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's been an interview with Rory Groves. We would encourage you to use the link in the description, pick up his book, Durable Trades, if you haven't already, and definitely peruse that. Uh, thanks, Rory, again for coming on and lending us your time and your knowledge and the fruit of your labors. And uh, listeners, we hope that you don't just listen to these episodes of the King's Hall, not just this one, but that you actually take the time to think actionably. What should I do next? What life steps should I take? Make sure that you're chewing your food when you listen to a good podcast or when you read a good book, that you're stopping and taking that time to make sure that the, the knowledge and the information that you're being given makes contact with your everyday life. And as you do that, like you heard in the interview, don't be a perfectionist, be a realist, be a doer, not just a theoretician. And as you do so, remember that the first work is to make sure that you are conquered by the spirit, that you're a self-ruled man. He conquers who conquers himself. Thanks for listening to this episode of the King's Hall, and we'll catch you next time.